John Hendrickson. I'm one of the pastors on staff uh, here at Daybreak, and uh, we've been journeying through this uh, season of Lent together. If you've been a part of anything that's happened here at Daybreak over the last uh, six weeks or so, uh, we've been walking through this this season of Lent, taking a look at the life of Jesus, uh, following him into some of his most intense moments, some of the 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 greatest interactions that he had with, with people, some of the most difficult things that he walked through, and we've been coming doing this to come to grips with this idea of how resolute he was, about how determined he was to, to do what his father had called him to do, to follow uh, who God created him to be and called him uh, to be. And today we're going to be following that resoluteness today and this week, right, all the way to the cross, which then paves the way for next Sunday's celebration of the resurrection, uh, which is Easter Sunday. One of the devotional books that have gone along with this series, uh, there was a couple different uh, devotionals that, could, that you could uh, read through if you wanted to as part of this Lent series. And one of them, uh, it, it, the author puts it this way about the season of Lent. He says that the spare and sober nature of Lent is healthy for the heart and true to the gospel, scrubbing away frothy spirituality by calling us to say no to ourselves in order to experience a greater yes in Jesus. It helps to imprint the form of the cross in our lives, recognizing that the news of the risen Lord Jesus is not good without the way of the cross. It's that final stage of the journey that we're going to be talking about today, the crucifixion. So what I want to do, I want to invite you to go ahead, if you haven't done so yet, 
pull out your outline. Uh, it's going to help you follow along. There's going to be some times where I'm gonna, you're going to read some of this on your own this morning, and so I would like you to pull this out It'll, and follow along with us. Um, there are a number of things that the gospel writers tell us uh, about the things that Jesus said when he was, when he was on the cross. Uh, one of the things that he said looking out at the crowds is he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Another thing that he said, at one point he mentioned that how thirsty he was. At another point, he spoke to his mother Mary, who was there. Uh, at one point, he was talking to one of the criminals who was beside him and said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. At one point, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as his suffering was coming to an end, one of the things that he says is, It is finished. Each of those phrases, each of those elements of this story have their own uniqueness and significance. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a different phrase that comes from uh, Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 23, uh, a couple of verses are right there in your outline. It says this. It says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. So in the midst of being on the cross, in the midst of this, this crucifixion, in the midst of Jesus being in his greatest pain, in, in the midst of this incredible suffering as his life was coming to a close, Jesus cried out with all of the strength that he could muster, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So even in his death, Jesus was saying something that he demonstrated over and over and over again with his life, that he trusted his father, that he was giving himself to his father, uh, to, to the calling that, the, that his father had placed on his life. And so in these moments, he says, I commit my spirit into your hands. One of the cool things about this series is we've had uh, paintings every week that have kind of related to the topic that we've been talking about. Uh, Mary Lou Oldhauser, who's a part of our church family, has been uh, creating these each week. And I love the one. Do we have the one for this week here? I like this one because it just does a, it, it's a great picture of this, this moment. I love the different the, the, the colors in it. And we see the crosses there, and it just does a, a great way to illustrate what this moment that we're talking about today was like. So for us, when we think about Jesus in this moment and what he was going through and what he was experiencing in, in him committing himself into his father's hands, what would it look like for us to follow him? follow his example in that moment? What does it look like for us to place our hands in the spirit, our, our spirit in the hands of the Father as well? And when we make that decision, when we say we want to do that, what does that look like? Like how, how do we do that? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So the first blank in your outline is this. Father, as I commit my spirit into your hands, number one, I thank you for removing the barrier. I thank you for removing the barrier. Now, there's an interesting phrase in this uh, story that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you're not familiar, at least a little bit, with, with Jewish history and some of the things that were happening. Uh, here in this crucifixion story, we're told that there's a darkness that covers the land, that there's this phrase there at the end of verse 45. Again, in verses 44 and 45, it says, It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And then I want you to underline this last sentence. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
And it, if, in a quick reading of the story, that's, it, 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 that's something that doesn't necessarily make a lot of a sense to us. It's something that's easy to overlook. But the temple curtain tearing is an extremely important part of this story. And it paints an important picture of how, because of Jesus, humanity's relationship with God is now different. The, Jew, ooh, excuse me, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, uh, where, where this, this curtain took place, there's a diagram. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty visible. Um, was about a five, to maybe a ten-minute walk from where the crucifixion was taking place, and within the temple, which was outside of this, there was this uh, inner court, which is what this diagram shows us is the inner court. And what would happen was this was the court where the, of, of the priests. It was for the priests, and the priests would what they would do is they would ascend the stairs uh, to enter the holy place where they would offer incense to God on what was called the altar of incense. And, and the one thing that kept the presence of God separated from people was called the veil or the curtain. And it was the thick, heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was considered God's throne room. It was, it was the, the Ark of the Covenant was inside this holy of holies. And the curtain itself, the veil, was made of one piece of woven fabric, and it's thought to have been very thick and very, very heavy. It was made of blue and purple and, and red yard. Um, yarn with images of angels woven uh, into it. And when it was time for the high priest to enter, which, was, he was, which only he was allowed to do, and, and he was only allowed to do it at one time a year, he would come in and he would make what was called the, an atoning sacrifice for himself and for the sins uh, of the people. And so at Jesus' crucifixion, in those final moments when it says that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, it, it displayed that through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, there would no longer need to be this curtain or this veil, between uh, this barrier between God and man. That Jesus is now the great high priest, that he is now the atoning sacrifice, that what had previously separated us from God was no longer there, that people are now able to go directly to God, to come directly into his presence to ask for his mercy and his forgiveness. Through his death, Jesus became the atoning sacrifice, removing the barrier that had previously existed between people and God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, celebrates this truth, uh, saying this, which is in your outline there. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. So you and I have an opportunity. We have an invitation to come right into the presence of God, and Jesus provided us with that opportunity. And so we can enter with boldness and confidence into his presence. And for the people in Jesus' day, this would have been incredibly revolutionary, right? Entering into God's presence, like we saw in the temple picture there, entering into God's presence was seen as something that was only for a, a select few. It was only something that happened on very special occasions. But now there was a whole new way, because of Jesus, of relating with God. As the verse says, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way so that we can go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. I was reading this week, I was uh, some, um, just doing some research about this, this temple curtain being torn and, 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 the, and what it meant. And, 
And, and there was another cool thing that I learned about what this, what this tearing of this curtain uh, would illustrate. In addition to this idea that it now gives us access to God <laughs> for all time through this one atoning sacrifice of Jesus, um, it, it may have also illustrated the father's grief in the moment of his son's death. Um, in, the, in the Jewish culture, the tearing of clothing was something that was often an expression of grief. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament where uh, we see this happen, that when, when a father re- uh, received news that his, his child was dead, that his son was dead, he would oftentimes display his grief by tearing his clothes from top to bottom. Um, in, his, in his agony, in his pain, in his sadness, and in his despair, he would express his grief by, by ripping his wardrobe, his clothing from top to bottom to display to everyone this great pain that he was experiencing. Uh, One of the commentators who was talking about this put it this way. I'm just going to read this for you. He says that we see in this part of the story that our Heavenly Father does not love less than a human father, but more. His love is deeper, infinite, without bounds, not hemmed in by human frailty and weakness. And how his heart must have grieved to see the racked and broken body of his son pinned to the cruel and cursed tree. And so as his son breathes his last and the heart of God breaks, The divine robe, the curtain, is torn in two from top to bottom. How great and awful the death of the Son of God, not only to the Son, but to the Father. The tearing of the temple curtain was indeed an indication that the way into the Father's presence had been opened. But the rending of the garment of God also reminds us that the way to life came at a great price and through great anguish, an anguish that God himself endured. The eternal Son died, and the eternal Father grieved. So even though, even though the Father and Son knew what was going to happen, right? even though the Father and the Son knew that this was part of, of the plan, even though they knew that the resurrection was right around the corner just a few days away, the Son still experienced the brutality of the cross, the, the pain of the crucifixion, and the Father still grieved at the death of His Son. For both of them, it was a grief that was laced with hope, but it was still grief. And in my understanding of this story, when I think about the cross, I've I've been so keenly aware, as I've heard this story and grown up with this story, of the suffering that Jesus endured, which is is very true and very uh, incredible. His bleeding, his beating, his humiliation, all of those things. He went through all of that for us, but his father went through it as well. And I think about, when I think about that image of the, of the torn clothing, I think about the vulnerability that the father displays in such an image. Uh, the image of a father with his clothing torn and weeping and mourning and grieving the suffering and death of his own son. And the vulnerability that we see there, I believe, speaks to the father's desire for us to see what he's really like, to know what matters to him, to understand what he is like at the core of his being. In that moment, when the father's curtain was torn, I wonder if he was saying, this is what I'm like. (laughs) This is what I'm like. This is what my love for my son looks like, and this is what my love for you looks like. It reminds me of the image of a father that Jesus used in one of his stories. (laughs) Most of us are probably familiar with it, but in this one story that Jesus tells, there's a father that behaves in a way that's un- unexpected as well. He had a son uh, who left years earlier 
uh, with his share of the family inheritance and squandered it on a bunch of wild living, on, a, on doing just a, a, a whole bunch of things that, that, that uh, brought shame to his family. And he had left with the share of, of his inheritance, and he was wallowing in his self-pity because it was all gone, and he was left with nothing. He had spent it all, wasted it all. And so he was heading back to his father's home in shame, hoping to simply serve as his father's slave, just to serve as his father's slave. And if you know the story, you know the image that Jesus tells us there, is that while this son was a long way off and he was rehearsing the the words that he was going to say to his father, while he was a long way off, the father spots him. And what does the father do? He runs, right? He just, he runs. He does this this all-out sprint, this crazy, like, probably pick up his robe, just run, like, all-out sprint, right, for for his son. Sorry, there's a good image for you, yeah. (laughs) It was a totally undignified thing to do, and he goes all out and runs uh, to his son and throws his arms around his son and throws a party for him to celebrate his return. And Jesus told that story to people for a reason. He was explaining to the religious leaders of the day, specifically, the people who were supposed to know what his father was like. And he was saying, that image, that image, that is what my father is like. That's what he's like. And in both of those images of the father, there's a vulnerability that's expressed in a surprising way. In one image, a father out of sheer joy races out to greet and to celebrate the return of this child who had been lost. And in the other image, a father tears his clothing from top to bottom to grieve the pain that his son is experiencing. And what's the link between those two images? It's the extent of the father's love. It's the extent of the father's love. He was willing to go through the grief of his son's suffering because of his desire to see his lost children return home. He was willing to allow Jesus to experience crucifixion because of his desire for all of his children to have the opportunity to return to their father. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That verse, John 3.16, is such a popular one because it speaks so directly to the incredible truth that we have a father and a son that love us so much that they are willing to go through the experience of the cross so that our relationship with our Father can be restored. And when we turn to him, when we return home to him, he runs out with us in joy and celebrates. When we make the decision to commit our spirit into his hands, when we make that decision, when we say, God, I want to, I want to, I want to, do what Jesus did on the cross and commit my spirit into your hands. I think a big part of that is to, to at the very beginning, to say, thank you for removing the barrier, Jesus. (laughs) Thank you for removing the the barrier, Father, to allow us to be able to know you, to allow us to be in relationship with you, and that we do so in recognition not only of what Jesus went through on on the cross to make that happen, but what his Father went through as well. And I know Sean mentioned it earlier, but this week uh, on Friday, Good Friday, there's a communion experience that I would encourage you to consider participating in. Um, It takes about uh, 30 minutes uh, to go through over it. Again, it's over at our other campus, but it's just a great chance to go to take some time to reflect on this 
this whole idea of what did, what did Jesus go through? <laughs> what was that sacrifice like? What was that experience like? And, and in the midst of that, um, the different uh, pieces of that, you have an opportunity uh, to, to take communion. So I'd encourage you to do that uh, this week. Let's move on to the second point there in your outline, which is this. Father, as I commit my spirit into your hands, number two, I will trust you and entrust myself to you. I will trust you and entrust myself to you. Back to, uh, back to Luke's gospel, it says in verse 46, it says that Jesus called out with a loud voice, which would have been very difficult, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. So in the last... In these final moments on the cross, Jesus not only trusts his Father, as we've seen throughout the whole process, but he actually, he once again, entrusts himself to his Father. Uh, in his uh, book, Final Words from the Cross, Adam Hamilton, uh, who's a pastor and a writer, he says this. He says, this was Jesus' dying prayer. It was a prayer of absolute trust in God. Jesus from the cross, had forgiven his enemies, offered mercy to a thief, prayed for his mother, come to a place where he felt abandoned by God, and expressed his physical thirst. But before his death, he declared the shout of triumph, it is finished, and offered this beautiful prayer of absolute trust in his Father. In his New Testament commentary on Luke, William Barclay suggests that this prayer from Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit, was a prayer Jewish children were taught by their mothers to pray as they went to sleep each night. I find this a beautiful thought, that Mary may have taught this prayer to Jesus when he was a boy, and that Jesus, before he died, offered this simple prayer to his heavenly Father. On the cross, Jesus again was teaching us how to pray. When we're facing darkness and despair, when we're facing the valley of the shadow of death, when we're facing the unknown, what should we pray? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but when I think about this idea of trusting God, I find that it's a lot easier, a whole lot easier to say, yeah, I trust God, than to actually live it out with my actions, to actually entrust myself into his hands. Um, the other day, uh, my son and I were at uh, the, uh, a local park. I remember we had that one warm day. Remember that? Yeah, uh, that's when we did it. We were at the park, and we were, we were, there's this one spot where there's these, this stone wall, and he likes to walk along the stone wall. And so he was walking on the stone wall, and we got, we got to the point where uh, it was getting close time to go, and he was standing there about four feet off the ground, and I said, Jacoby, jump to me. I'll catch you. And he looked at me. He looked down. And he kind of went, and then he just leaped. He just left, right? He just jumped right into my arms, and I did catch him, by the way. I will say that. I did catch him. And he, he, didn't mind, he didn't mind trusting himself into my hands. For some reason, it, just, it wasn't a problem for me. If, if I was up there and someone had told me to jump, I would kind of ha- you know, check them out, like look at how big I am, see if, they can, if they're going to be able to handle it. I'll look, maybe there's an easier way to get down. I'll look at how far down it is and which ankle I would probably roll and have to, how long I'd have to limp uh, to, to recover from the injury or, or, or whatever, um, I'd be thinking about all, all of those things, or maybe I'll just figure out my own way down. But not Jacoby, right? Not Jacoby. Papa said jump, and he jumps, right? He not, only entrusts, he not only trusts me, but he actually entrusted himself to me. I saw a video clip this week that I think illustrates this point well. Uh, I'd love for you to check it out on the screen.
Jean-Francois Gravelet, better known as Blondine, was a famous tightrope walker and acrobat. He's perhaps best known for his many crossings of the tightrope, 1,100 feet in length, suspended 160 feet above Niagara Falls in the USA. His act will be watched by large crowds and begin with a relatively simple crossing using a balancing pole. Then he would throw away the pole and amaze the onlookers. On one occasion, he crossed the tightrope on stilts. On another occasion, blindfolded. Another time, he stopped halfway to cook and eat an omelette. In 1860, a royal party from England came to watch Blondin perform. After his normal spectacular crossings, he then wheeled a wheelbarrow from one side to the other as the crowd cheered. Next, he put a sack of potatoes into the wheelbarrow and wheeled that across. The crowd cheered louder. Then he approached the royal party and asked the Duke of Newcastle, Do you believe that I could take a man across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? Yes, I do, said the Duke. Ah, hop in, replied Blondin. The crowd fell silent. But the Duke of Newcastle would not accept Blondin's challenge. Is there anyone else here who believes I could do it? asked Blondin. No one was willing to volunteer. Eventually, an old woman stepped out of the crowd and climbed into the wheelbarrow. Blondin wheeled her all the way across and all the way back. The old woman was Blondin's mother, the only person willing to put her life in his hands. When it comes to entrusting ourselves into God's hands, uh, it's not really that difficult to say, yes, I believe that I trust you, or yes, sure, I trust you, um, or to think with our minds that we believe him or trust him. But the type of trust that he invites us to is one that requires us not just once, but over and over again to entrust ourselves into his hands. It's the type of trust in the Father that Jesus displayed both in his life and in his death. It's a hop-on-in-the-wheelbarrow type of trust or a jump-from-the-wall-to-me type of trust. But how do we do that, right? How do, we, how do we live out that type of trust? Because, let's face it, sometimes it's a little bit more complex than hopping in a wheelbarrow, right? Sometimes it's a little more complex than that. Sometimes we're not even sure there is a wheelbarrow or we're not even sure where he's telling us to hop or what he's telling us to do. And, and so as I was thinking about this week, I realized I just have to confess that I'm not exactly an expert at this. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exactly an expert in entrusting myself to God. I'm certainly still learning and growing and struggling with what it looks like to entrust myself into his hands. And one of the things that I'm learning is that our relationship with God, our entrusting ourselves to him, is something that constantly changes over time because God is relational in nature. He's a father uh, that relates to us as his adopted children. Uh, and so the relational dynamic means that he invites us uh, to continue to learn from him, to continue to discover what entrusting ourselves into his hands looks like each and every day. Because it's going to look different for each and every one of us based on the stage of life that we're in, the circumstances that we're facing, uh, the, the, the things that he's called us to do. 
And we all have different barriers that we face in trusting him. One of the barriers that we face is just going through difficult circumstances, right? Difficult circumstances. Scripture points to this in a hundred different ways. But going through struggles and challenges and disappointments opens the door for us to trust in God more. But it also can create a barrier for us. When we experience painful and difficult situations, some of us are experiencing those right now. It's in these moments where God says, I wanted to invite you, even in those moments, to trust me, to entrust yourself to me. Another barrier to trusting him is pride, right? Pride. Now we can feel so, um, it, it can show up in, in, in a bunch of different ways. We can feel so self-sufficient that we don't really feel like we need God. Uh, we can try to be so hard to be in control of everything that we don't want to share control with God. Uh, sometimes we can feel so self-righteous that we forget about our need, our continual need for God's mercy and grace in our lives. Another barrier is our shame, right? We can feel so unworthy and so undeserving of his love and grace and mercy because of the things that we've done or because of the things that have been done to us. And so we refuse to, to entrust ourselves to him because we just don't feel like we should be able to get close enough to trust ourselves to him. So shame can cause us to keep our distance from him and even run away from him. And then another barrier of trust is fear. And this is one that I have mastered, this barrier. Uh, I've seen it pop up in my life in a number of different ways, and, and, and it, can, it, can crop up either, it can crop up in the fear of failure, uh, in the fear of the future, in the fear of the unknown. When fear is in the picture, it causes paralysis. And so instead of entrusting ourselves into God's hands, fear can cause us to stay put. Right, to stand on the sidelines, refuse to get into the wheelbarrow, do what everybody else. I love that picture. Everybody else in the video wouldn't even look at the guy. Right? They're all, yeah, we believe you could take somebody across. Who's going to volunteer? Right? Fear does that. It's what it, it does. It's t- to refuse to take the steps of faith needed to entrust ourselves to God. So those are all barriers. We could probably come up with 50 more if we, if we sat here and talked about it. But when we're ex- it's when we're experiencing those things that we have the opportunity to draw close to God because in the, it's in those moments that we need him most. Uh, in the psalm that Jesus was quoting from the cross when he said, into, into your hands I commit my spirit, Psalm 31, we see a lot of these same barriers, these same elements, these same emotions being shared. Uh, King David, who authored this psalm, had, had his own share of, of difficulties with these various barriers. And yet through the ups and downs of his, his story, David's story, we see someone who uh, who later in Scripture is referred to as a man after God's own heart. Uh, psalm 31, uh, which is in your outline there, it's actually, uh, the whole psalm is 24 verses long. We just, we're just taking a look at the first five, and I want to read them for you. They say this, it says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Now in these few verses, the word refuge shows up three different times. And and the word refuge shows up in the Psalms over 40 times. It's a word that shows up again and and again. And what, what what does the word refuge mean? A safe place, right? Yeah, it's like a a place of safety and shelter from harm or from danger. And so here's Jesus hanging from the cross, 
right? Hanging from the cross, experiencing an incredible amount of suffering. And while he's there, he's praying the words to a psalm that multiple times says, God, you are my refuge. You are my safe place. You are my shelter from harm. How can he be a shelter from harm, right? How how can he be? Jesus is dying on the cross. Harm is happening to him in that very minute. Pain is being inflicted and great suffering is being experienced. How could he pray those words in that moment? I believe that he could pray those words in that moment because he knew that the suffering he experienced, he was experiencing was temporary, but the relationship with his father was eternal. Jesus knew that his refuge was relational, not circumstantial in nature. He knew that he was better off experiencing suffering while being in the hands of his father than in trying to, to avoid suffering out there somewhere on his own. It was a trust issue, and he knew that his father could be trusted, and he took refuge in that relationship of trust. And that's why, even in his greatest moment of suffering, he could say and shout with a loud voice, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He was saying, Father, even right now, I entrust myself to you. Now, I know that uh, we all come here from different places this morning. We have different things going on in our lives, different experiences. We're at different stages uh, of life. Uh, But one of the cool things about this prayer, uh, one of the cool things about this this prayer that Jesus prayed is that it doesn't, it's relevant no matter where you are (laughs) in what stage you're in. No matter what's going on right now, this is an extremely relevant prayer. He, He longs for each of us. God longs for each of us to pray this prayer. He longs for us to to say this to him, to to entrust ourselves to him. How do we know that he longs for that? Because that's why he went to the cross. That's why he went through all this, is because he says, look, you can trust me. This is what I'm like. Come to me. Entrust yourself to me. And entrusting ourselves to God is something that can be done in any moment for the first time or for the thousandth time. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to take a few minutes of quiet together uh, to give us the opportunity uh, to do just that. We're going to have a couple minutes of quiet reflection uh, at our seats. And what I want you to do is I want you to read back through the verse, these verses of Psalm 31. And as you do, I want to see if there, if there are any phrases or words that jump out at you that, where you say, that's what, I, that's what I need right now, God. <laughs> that's what I want to ask you for. And so talk to, uh, identify what those are, talk to God a, a little bit about those, and then as, as, as we wrap up the, the, the minute or so of silence, I want you to then pray to God, say, God, okay, into your hands I commit my spirit. So if the phrase, turn your ear to me, is one that jumps out at you, you could talk to God for a minute about your desire, God, would you hear my cries right now? Would you, would you hear the things that I'm, that I'm calling out to you? And God, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. So let's take two minutes uh, and be quiet together, and then we'll close.
In you, O Lord, we have taken refuge. Let us never be put to shame. Deliver us in your righteousness. Turn your ear to us. Come quickly to our rescue. Be our rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save us. Since you are our rock and our fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide us. Keep us free from the trap that is set for us, for you are our refuge. Into your hands we commit our spirits. Deliver us, Lord, our faithful God. Amen. I want to invite you. Uh, the worship team is going to sing a song for us that uh, relates really well to this idea of, of entrusting ourselves into God's hands. And as they do, um, I'd like to invite you to, to respond on your, your card today. If you've been here before, you know we do this every week, but there's a few uh, blank lines on the back of this card for you to just record uh, maybe a way that God has challenged you, uh, maybe a, a, a prayer request that you have or a, a way that you want to pray as a result of what God said to you today. And so as they sing this song for us, take the opportunity uh, to respond.